The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. To think oneself wretched because of indwelling sin is a proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit. This whole passage is the awareness of holiness that the coming of the Holy Spirit brings into the life of a born-again believer. I am amazed that even such faithful commentators as Newell and Griffith Thomas have not been able to see this. In fact, I do not find what must be the true answer in any important commentary which has ever been written on Romans, and I believe I have examined most of them. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, Deliverance from Sin. If the Queen of England were to visit your home, you might become very self-conscious. You may have a sense of inferiority about yourself in the presence of such a distinguished guest. The Holy Spirit, living in a believer, will create a growing awareness of both the holiness of God and the appalling presence of indwelling sin. Is the Holy Spirit working in your life to develop a hunger to turn from iniquity and pursue holiness of life? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 7 and verse 24. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Deliverance from Sin. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and faithfulness. There is none like unto thee, O our God, and we rejoice that thou hast stooped to reveal thyself to us and made it possible for us to know thee in salvation and to grow in Christ by thy spirit. Use the word in this hour to bring strength to listening hearts. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today continues in the seventh chapter of Romans and comes to the 24th verse. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Once again we have the proof that this passage of Scripture is applicable only to a man who has been born again. An unsaved soul could never call himself wretched because he had become aware of the existence of the depths of the Adamic nature within himself. The first chapter of this epistle closed with the statement found three times that God had abandoned the unsaved man to himself and that such a man not only keeps on practicing sin even while knowing that it is to end in death 
but that he is pleased with other men who practice sin. Furthermore, the soulish man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. They are foolishness unto him, for they are spiritually discerned. An unsaved man may think himself wretched because of poverty, but never because of indwelling sin. An unsaved man may think himself wretched because of illness, but never because of indwelling sin. An unsaved man may think himself wretched because he has been caught in evil, but never because of the evil which made him guilty. An unsaved man may think himself wretched because of advancing age, but never because of the sin that has been the pattern of his life. To think oneself wretched because of indwelling sin is a proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit who alone can bring to man a knowledge of his lost condition. Paul was a moral man. He was able to testify to the Philippians that, touching the righteousness of the law, he was blameless. He was able, therefore, to do good in the definition of good that includes positive actions of righteousness. He was not talking about any condition of flagrant lawlessness in his own life before he was saved, for he testifies that he had never lived in any such condition. This whole passage is the awareness of holiness that the coming of the Holy Spirit brings into the life of a born-again believer. Here in our paragraph is a highly moral man who has been brought out of darkness and into light. The Holy Spirit has entered his body to make it his temple. Immediately, as the coming of any important guest makes you conscious of any inferiority in your home, so the coming of the Holy Spirit made Paul and every other born-again man conscious of the indwelling presence of sin. For the Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit, and he must bring his most important characteristic to light in our hearts. Even as love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us, so must the awareness of holiness come to be shed abroad in our hearts by this Spirit whose very name is Holy. Paul had known, even in his relationship to God under the law, a power that enabled him to keep from breaking the outward form of the Ten Commandments. He would be considered by any standards except those of God to be a righteous man working righteousness long before he had the indwelling presence of the Spirit. But now he wants more. I know this is true because I want more. I remember years ago thinking of Solomon's choice of wisdom when he was given the opportunity of having any desire fulfilled. I can remember thinking that if I had been given any choice, I would not have chosen wisdom, but I would have immediately claimed a holiness like unto the holiness of God. That must be the desire of anyone who has come to know God in Christ and in whom the Holy Spirit has come to dwell. So Paul, upon undergoing the great transformation which came when the Holy Spirit took up his abode in him, immediately desired absolute holiness. He wanted goodness that was unmixed. He wanted the perfection of God. And when he wanted it, there immediately arose within him the awareness that when he would do this perfect good, evil was present with him. The full comprehension of this passage can come only from the realization that the good here is not merely good actions, which Paul had been performing all his life, 
but a divine goodness, a perfect goodness, an unmixed goodness, the very goodness of God. Paul would have chosen not wisdom, but perfect holiness if he had been granted one choice. This surging desire for holiness because of the presence of the Holy Spirit is immediately confronted with the most violent opposition. The streams of all holiness flow from within us, from the presence of the Holy Spirit, but they flow through a heart that is deceitful above all things and incurably sick. The new man is wretched because of this lack of absolute, unmixed perfection, and cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? There would be little present value to the gospel if that cry echoed in a night of despair, and no answering trumpet blast of victory could be heard. Years ago I ran across a story which I have sought to verify, and for which I have never found any classical authority. It has certain illustrative elements which cause me to present it without verification. It is reported that near Tarsus, where Saul was born, there was a tribe of people who had a most terrible penalty, which they inflicted upon any man who was a murderer. Back in those hills of Asia Minor, it is said, there was the custom of fastening the body of the victim to that of the killer. If a man murdered another, the tribesmen took the dead body of the victim and put it upon the back of the murderer, fastening shoulder to shoulder, back to back, thigh to thigh, arm to arm and then driving the murderer with his horrible burden of death forth from the community. So tight were the bonds that there was no possibility of freeing himself from the dead thing. And after a few days, the death in the body of death began to communicate itself to the living flesh of the murderer. As he stalked the fields and paths of his land, there was none to help him. He had no possibility of relief, and only the frightful prospect of gangrenous death for himself. He could well cry in horror, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The believer who has become aware of the nature of true holiness by the incoming presence of the Holy Spirit must desire holiness with a most earnest desire. When that divine holiness makes him aware of his own innate carnality, there's a cry of horror that comes from his renewed being. Must the renewed I be forced to dwell in close contact with a body of death? Must I carry this thing on my back? The answer, which must be derived not only from the context, but from the whole of the New Testament revelation, is a twofold answer. There is deliverance, and it comes to us from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Practically all translators have rendered the Greek literally, leaving the direct answer in a phrase that has some words omitted, and the mind must supply the ellipsis. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The sense would make it necessary for us to fill in so that the answer would come, I thank God there is deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. Weymouth has not given us an absolutely literal translation, but though he has slightly violated the grammar of the Greek, he has succeeded in giving us a more startling translation. It reads, Who shall rescue me from this body of death? God, to whom be thanks through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
and the Roman Catholic confraternity version has followed the famous French translation of Sagone. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? The grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, thanks be to God there is deliverance from the body of this death. To all of those who have been frightened at this paragraph because they thought that it might permit the condoning of lawlessness, we answer immediately that the Bible teaches that it is possible for a believer to live without gross outbreaks of sin. We have pointed out that Paul achieved this state while still related to God only in the covenant of the Old Testament. As touching the righteousness of the law, he was blameless. He had not yet had the burning conflicts that arise when there is the thirst after unmixed good and the divine perfection of the Holy Spirit. But he did know already the deliverance from the wild outbreaks of the carnal forces that are within even the born-again believer. If we show theoretically that it is possible for a believer to live contemplating the Lord Jesus and availing himself of the power of the risen Christ, and that it is possible for him to be without the breaking forth of the Adamic nature for the space of one second, we then establish that it is possible for him thus to live for the space of two seconds. Now, if it's possible for him to live thus for two seconds, it is possible for three seconds, for five seconds, for ten seconds, for one minute, for ten minutes, for an hour, for a day, for a week, for a month, for a year, for ten years, and so on. Now, we must be very careful here to avoid error on two sides. Our context is showing us that even where it is possible, for the believer to live in triumph over outward eruptions of sin, the old carnal nature is still within, touching everything that is done and contaminating it. I search for an illustration to illuminate the truth and find nothing but a, a dirty illustration. But the subject is an unclean one. The subject is our sinful nature, and I may therefore be permitted to use the foul illustration. We can imagine a condition in which sewage is being carried away in a wooden flume, and this flume passes by a clear flowing spring. There have been occasions when the flume has lost a board, and the sewage has poured into the spring, thoroughly contaminating it to the point where its waters would be unsafe to drink, where, in fact, they would convey the contamination of death. This is a situation which is possible to remedy completely. It need not be necessary for a Christian to have the sewage of the Adamic nature flow forth in wild outburst in his life. It is possible for it to be contained within its bounds and the flagrant outpouring of its death dammed back so that it may not release its complete contamination in the spring. Thus it is with the life of the believer in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in, and the flow of holiness from his presence begins within us. But the Adamic nature comes forth at weak spots, violently, and dominates the stream of some Christian lives. These are the Christians who are carnal, walking as unsaved men. Such a condition need not be. We are told in Galatians that complete victory from violent outbreaks of the flesh is possible at all times for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Galatians 5.16, This I say then, 
Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There are no ifs, no ands, or buts, or maybes about that promise. It is categorical and final. In my illustration, it is the statement that the flume need not lose any more boards, but that the restraining pressure of the Holy Spirit may keep the sewage confined to its bounds, and that the contamination of death need never more flow from us. And now I must present the remaining phase of the illustration. During the last paragraphs, the advocates of the doctrine of the eradication of the old nature have been drawing comfort from what I have said, believing perhaps that I was coming to their position. This is not so. I have, with the first phase of the illustration, condemned the doctrine of the lawless antinomian. With the next phase of the illustration, I confirm all that we have been seeing in the last study and the present one. That flume, with its sewage, is within every one of us. Though no boards need come off to make the spring foul and unusable, there is always a slight seepage at the joints, and just enough of contamination comes into the water that springs forth from the new life to keep it from having the unmixed perfection that there was in Jesus Christ, and which we will know only when we are in heaven. When technicians analyze the water of ponds, lakes, and springs, they always find some traces of contamination. Men have never found completely sterile water in nature. There may not be enough of contamination to cause the spring to be condemned for human use, but there is enough to cause the analyst to write on his report that there are traces of the contaminating bacilli. So we conclude that the believer in Christ is given the absolute power to overcome the eruptive outbreaks of the old Adamic nature, but that its presence within us constantly gives a slight contamination to all of our life here on earth. This is the meaning of the phrase, the evil that I would not, that I do. This evil which is done is not to be understood as the breaking out of the evil into deeds which the believer may commit and which could have been avoided by greater faithfulness and watchfulness. Newton comments on this, when Peter temporized at Antioch and virtually surrendered the truth of the gospel, his sin was one which watchfulness and faithfulness would have prevented. And consequently, he had no title to say of his transgression, it was not I that did it, but sin that dwelleth in me. To attempt to shelter deliberate transgressions, whether they be habitual as in the world, or occasional, as in the case of believers, by bringing them within the scope of this passage, is antinomianism, lawlessness. The workings of sin contemplated in this passage are such as no watchfulness can hinder, no faithfulness avoid. The existence of sin within us entails on us certain consequences which we have no more power to evade than the idiot has to change his look of idiocy, or the palsied hand has power to free itself from its torpor. The transgression of our first parents brought upon us not only the imputed guilt of that transgression, but also entailed on us the hereditary possession of a depraved nature. There are certain effects of that depravation 
which are beyond the power of our control, and it is of such effects that this passage treats, and not of transgressions which the believer by watchfulness could avoid. Any manifestation of evil to which we can truthfully apply the word, so then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me, is not to be included among the deeds referred to in this passage. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The question seems to have been asked merely to give opportunity for the answer. Grace has provided the insulation which we may use to prevent the positive outbreak of sin. And grace maintains us in our onward march through the Christian life in spite of the presence of indwelling sin. In our next study, we shall take up more fully the threefold nature of our deliverance that is promised here. There remains one thought that is very pertinent to what we have seen. If the explanation of this paragraph which I have presented in this and the last study is the correct one, and I believe that it is, then why have the commentators made such havoc of the passage? Why have antinomians taken a lawless delight in twisting the paragraph to their protection? And why have believers who earnestly desire true holiness become so frightened at it? The answer lies, perhaps, in the very nature of indwelling sin and furnishes a further illustration of all that I have been teaching. Even when we would interpret well, there is the presence of the old nature which seeks something for itself. We can readily understand why those with a tendency to open lawlessness should wave this paragraph like a flag of triumph, glorying in their shameful interpretation. But the failure to see that this is in reality a great call to the grace of God and a bulwark in the setting forth of the doctrine of practical holiness arises from the Adamic nature's unwillingness to have things called by their right names. Is there not reason then, Newton asks, to think that if our spiritual intelligence, or rather spiritual sensitiveness, were more acute, we should find less difficulty in understanding this passage? The energies of the new man must be lively in any soul that can practically say, I delight in the law of God. I desire and long after the unmixed good which holiness demands. The spiritual perceptions of the soul must be quick and sensitive when it habitually watches the risings and workings of indwelling sin and counts evil as a deed, even though it may, through grace, be withstood and never become a deliberate purpose of the soul. We are so accustomed to judge after the manner of men and to attach culpability only to deliberate counsels or deliberate acts that if evil desire be resisted, we are far more ready to take credit to ourselves for the resistance than we are to acknowledge that evil desire is in itself sin and a fruit of essential sin. The very holiness, therefore, of the passage occasions our difficulty in understanding it. It recognizes as deeds things which men are not accustomed to regard as deeds. It teaches us that whenever sin within us moves, some effect, either inward or outward, is produced, which not only frustrates our desire after the unmixed good which the law requires, 
but would, except for grace, leave us forever in hopelessness and condemnation. If we understand this, we will realize why some saint of old said that even our tears of sorrow for sin needed to be washed in the blood of Christ, and that even our repentance had in it that which needed to be repented of. We can go on through all of the phases of Christian living and understand the truth this way in the light of our context. Our preaching needs to be cleansed moment by moment by the grace of God in Christ, and our prayers must be purified if they are to reach the holiest of all. Our God and Father, we pray thee that thou shalt bless thy people, and that in every heart where there is a desire for holiness, thou shalt come by thy Spirit to show them the possibilities of complete deliverance from outward violation of thy great law of holiness. Bless indeed, we pray thee. Amen. We can easily become discouraged by our sin, weakness, and failure and fall into despair. But God's abundant flood of grace is available to all who turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Deliverance from Sin. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Deliverance from Sin, or simply request message number R7-16. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, Temptation and How to Meet It. Temptation comes to us by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and pulls us away from God towards sin and disobedience. How can we effectively fight against its powerful influence? This free booklet traces the history of temptation, identifies its various sources and manifestations, and outlines the biblical strategies for effectively dealing with temptation in whatever form it takes. Ask for your free copy of Temptation and How to Meet It when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.